I want to begin today with a real story of one of my life experiences. I've shared this story before. But the tragedy of the story is, is that we need to hear the story again and again. Because if we don't learn from our history, we are doomed to commit the same mistakes. I was sitting in a board meeting of a church that was running just under 300 in attendance. I was the third person on the staff, actually the fourth, because we had a full-time secretary as well. There was a minister. There was a youth minister, full-time. I was a part-time minister of music and evangelism. Running almost 300. The first mistake was that the church decided that a new member of the church and a new Christian at that, because he was a very successful businessman, should be one of the board members. So he moved into a position on the board of the church. Not only did they very quickly make him a board member after he had become a new Christian. But within one year at the next election, they made him the chairman of the board. The board meeting started. And it did start with the normal perfunctory prayer. The one that you do just because you're supposed to start with a prayer. But during the board meeting, issues got raised and things got very heated. And one of the other members of the board said to the chairman of the board, I think we need to just stop and pause for a word of prayer. And this relatively new Christian in a position of power as the chairman of the board said, and I quote, has it come to that? Has it come to that? That was 1976. By the year 1995, the church no longer existed. Right in a very populated area of Louisville, Kentucky. Many, many people to draw from. In fact, a group bought the building and grew out of the building. Because it was an area that was very ripe. But the problem was is that that church had not stopped to consider that we have a mandate from Scripture to be people of the book and to be people of prayer. 
The name probably means nothing to you. But not even a month ago, on November the 30th, Horace Jackson Brown Jr., they called him H. Jackson Brown Jr., died at the age of 81 in his home in Nashville, Tennessee. He was an American author, best known for his inspirational books, Life's Little Instruction Book, Volume 1 and Volume 2. That little book, in fact, the first one, was on the New York Times bestseller list from the summer of 1991 through the summer of 1994, staying as the bestseller for almost a year among paperbacks. It was described by one person as having ruled the New York Times advice, how-to, and miscellaneous bestseller list. Mr. Brown's book was actually written for his son Adam. I read some things that Adam wrote about his father and about the book. And he said, you know, really, those were just all things that Dad had talked to me all my life. And as it turned out, he kept a mechanical pencil and a little notebook. And whenever anything would come up like that, he would jot it down. And that was what he used to compile this book. 511 homespun commands characteristically beginning with phrases like resist temptation or shall respect. An excellent little book to have. Goes into all areas. Business, home life, going to school, dating. One of them in there was always take, a, take your date bowling. I don't know. One of his oft quoted phrases which appears in almost every compilation of quotations whether you're searching for self-help motivations or quotes regarding prayer is his statement never forget the three powerful resources you always have available to you love, prayer, and forgiveness. I don't think we can disagree can we? 1 Corinthians 13, Paul would close by saying that there's faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. He would write to the Christians at Ephesus, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as Christ, as God in Christ forgave you. And prayer? I cannot say enough about the importance of prayer as a resource for your life. That board meeting that I referred to should have started with prayer, continued in the spirit of prayer, and brought every issue to God in prayer if there was any disagreement at all before a decision was made. I don't think I need to say this, do I? But people are struggling. People are feeling disenchanted, fearful. Many people are feeling defeated. More than at any other time in my life, and I know for a couple of you I'm only 68, but for others of you I'm 68. 
more than at any other time in my life. We need to hear that you and I as Christians are not powerless. We have three powerful resources available to us. Love, prayer, and forgiveness. And I don't believe we have any idea just how much power we have in prayer. It's the place for us to begin each day and remain throughout the day. Remember the song? When you, when you left your room this morning... I don't get the tune. When you left your room this morning, did you think to pray? Did you pause to pray? When you left your room this morning... Something like that. I'll spare you. Now before I go to the stories that Jesus told... Let me first share just a little bit about what we know to be the power of prayer. James, chapter 5, verses 13 to 18. The words pray or prayer are used in every single verse. And verse 16, James writes, The prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. Or for those of you that memorized the King James as I did in church camp, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Let me share just a few short stories from an article that's titled Healing Research. Why do I spend so much time in our prayer time? Stop, go around, make sure everybody has an opportunity to share their prayers. Listen to what this article talks about. It's titled, Healing Research, What We Know and Don't Know, and it was written by a doctor named Larry Dossey. He points out that the study that got things going was published in 1988 by Dr. Randolph Bird, who was a board-certified staff cardiologist, listen to me, at the University of California, San Francisco. Okay? We're not talking about Bible college. We're talking about major university, school of medicine. The study was done in the coronary care unit at San Francisco General Hospital. It involved approximately 400 patients who had had heart attacks or acute chest pain. And they were hospitalized in the cardiac unit. Roughly half of these people were prayed for by having their first names only framed, or farmed, I mean, farmed out to various prayer groups around the country. The other half were not, were not assigned special prayer. Nobody knew whether or not they were being prayed, prayed for. It was a double-blind study. The people who were in the intervention group receiving long distance, in some cases, intercessory prayer, unknown to them, yet they did better statistically on several clinical counts. The study was followed up 
but not until 11 years later because people were having a hard time accepting it. Dr. William Harris at Mid-America Heart Institute in Kansas City. He did a randomized but controlled trial of the effects of remote intercessory prayer on the outcomes of patients admitted to the coronary care units. He showed that patients in the coronary care unit who were assigned intercessory prayer did significantly better than those who were not assigned prayer. Even when they didn't know they were being prayed for. A third study, and there are some questions regarding the ethics of this study, not the accuracy, not the viability, but just the ethics of it because it was a what's called a triple blind study. Not only did the subjects, the patients know, but even the physicians that were taking care of them were not aware of what was taking place. They didn't have a clue that the study was even going on. People from Canada, the United States, and Australia were all praying for these young women in a fertilization and embryo transfer clinic to get pregnant. And the group that was being prayed for had twice the successful pregnancy rate as the women who were not assigned intercessory prayer. Now the odds of that happening by chance are more than a thousand to one. Don't tell me that prayer does not work and that it's not powerful. For a while, the best known study that had been done came out of Duke University Medical School by Dr. Mitchell Krukoff and Suzanne Crater and their team. And again, it took subjects who had undergone a cardiac catheterization. And they found that if patients undergoing those procedures received prayer, even when the prayer wasn't known to them, they had a 50 to 100% fewer side effect rate than the people who were not being prayed for. Now, I've shared with you what the Bible says from James. But I also shared with you what secular, non-religious institutions have found out about prayer. In fact, one person who is on the National Medical Board said that he foresees a doctor being sued for medical malpractice if the doctor doesn't inform the patient about what the possibility of prayer might do for them. So I hope you understand why I want to emphasize during the year 2022. I want to emphasize prayer as a resource for us here at First Christian Church Brook and for the kingdom. I want us to find out ways we can have more and increased prayer times. I'm going to seek out a way to open up a room in the building that has the prayer list available 
and a bench where you can kneel or a comfortable chair where you can sit at a table, whatever you choose, and just come in and spend time praying. I know of the story of two great ministers. One who initiated it, another who followed the example, who had a room underneath the pulpit. In the one case, it was difficult because they had to go into the old coal room because that was what was right underneath the pulpit. But they still did it. And they would meet there during the service and pray for the minister while he was speaking. And both of those ministers attributed to their very successful ministries, not to their abilities, but to the prayer that was taking place on their behalf. Our text for today comes from Luke chapter 18, verses 1 to 14. But I actually want to begin with the second story that Jesus told, verses 9 to 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Yes. There are people like that today. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. He beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. I want to emphasize from this story what I have called the posture of prayer. Now I'm not talking about standing up, laying down, kneeling. I don't think that matters. Interestingly, one of the passages that people jump on a soapbox about, women teaching in the church, a part of that passage also has the phrase, let men lift up holy hands before the Lord in prayer. Not quarreling. You see very many churches insisting that the men are lifting their hands up and praying and not fighting with one another. I know of one church where the man who sat on one side of the table and the man who sat on the other side of the table didn't talk to each other for three years and yet led that church in communion. No, what I'm talking about is that I think the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector shows that it's not the proud and the self-righteous who are justified before God, but those who recognize their sin and rely on God's mercy. Listen to me. Prayer is not 
Prayer is not a tool by which we can hold God hostage. As if we can somehow name it and claim it. Something by means of praying that actually as Jesus speaks of the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector against that very attitude. Self-righteous. Those who think they have it together in some way or another. That their faith is somehow sufficient to force God's hand. Bible. Best place to go. How many agree that you believe Paul was a man of faith? You don't have to raise your hand. He had a young companion named Timothy who was having stomach problems. Did he tell Timothy to name it and claim it? Just have faith, Timothy. You'll get over that problem. No. He told Timothy, take a little wine for your stomach's sake. He said that he left another one of his companions back home because he was sick. Why didn't he just say, hey, have faith, get over it, get better. In terms of his own life, he said, I have a thorn in the flesh and I prayed three times that God would have removed it. Why, man of faith, it should have been gone, right? He said, God told me my grace is sufficient. You see, in the parable, this Pharisee and the tax collector, they're both praying in the temple. They're at the right place. But the Pharisee is bragging before God while the tax collector is broken before God. And I think Matthew, having been a tax collector, he would have had a real insider's personal identification with this story from Jesus. And Jesus concludes that the tax collector who is humble and broken is the one who leads justified with God. And please remember that Jesus is telling the story for people who are self-confident and self-righteous, who believe they're on top of the situation. And those people, if you'd have asked them, if you'd have taken a poll, I guarantee you that probably 100%, maybe 99, but probably 100% of his hearers would have seen the Pharisee as the devout one and the tax collector as the sinner. But notice also that the Pharisee's prayer is not even so much as a prayer as it is a boast. He doesn't make a request. He doesn't even praise God. How does the model prayer, the one that many of us call the Lord's Prayer, how does Jesus begin that prayer? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name starts by praising God. Now the Pharisee only thanks God for not allowing himself to be like the others, for, for being better than everyone else. And in case God had forgotten why he's better than everyone else, all oh, the Pharisee does a good job of reminding him of his fasting and his giving, his tithing. 
The tax collector, on the other hand, demonstrates genuine humility and contrition. He recognizes his sin, his unworthiness, and so he requests God's mercy. See, that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about placing ourselves in the right relationship with God. That's the posture. So Jesus concludes by saying that contrary to what everybody might be thinking, it's actually the tax collector who leaves the temple right with God. And the reason is that there is a divine reversal of roles still at work. The correct posture is humility, not pride. And that's antithetical to justification. Hopefully, I'm going to get accepted. I don't know. They don't have to. I've been given some pretty good vibes that they're going to. But hopefully I'm going to get accepted back into the program that I did not finish back in the late 70s. I've applied to finish what's known as a THM degree that I had started. It's the first year of a PhD program. And because of what I have learned from my son, I'm wanting to research and write in the area that the cross is not just for salvation, but it's an ethic as to the way we should be living. What is called a cruciform, cross-shaped way of living. So if we want to be able to utilize the resource of prayer in our work here at Brook, it's going to require that we begin with a posture of humility and servanthood. Well, let's read on. This is how the chapter begins. And he told them a parable, a story, to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Anybody got into the position where they're ready to give up? They don't think they're worthy? They don't understand how God can have a relationship with them? He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I'll give her justice so that she'll not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says? And will not God give justice to His elect who cry to Him day and night? Will He delay long over them? 
I tell you, He'll give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on earth? The beginning story in the chapter, chapter is not about our posture, but it's about our need for being persistent in our prayers. The story is about a widow who is, who is her persistence before what is obviously an unjust judge. And although the judge is not inclined to listen to her request, he relents because of her persistence. You know, for 2,000 years, a recurring question has, has been made. How are we to live in the not yet as we await for the return of Christ? And I think Jesus addressed this question with this parable. A parable that's only found in Luke. The parable's pur purpose was explicit. We don't have to guess at its central message, though there's a lot in it that could be unpacked. Jesus' disciples are told to continue praying until He comes back. His people are not to give up on prayer. And so, with a very minimum number of words, Jesus creates a stark contrast. Two very distinct people. A dishonest judge and a humble widow. And the judge admitted he didn't fear God or care about men. Verse 4. And Jesus' hearers would have been thinking, why, if he's a Jew, he's openly defying the primary qualification for judges. The fear of God. Go back to 2 Chronicles 19. One of my favorite stories. I, I have often said that I'm not as much into the prayer of Jabez as I am into the prayer of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat says, hey Lord, I'm, not, I'm powerless. The enemy's strong. I'm powerless and I don't know what to do. Can you help me? In 2 Chronicles 19, Jehoshaphat is de desperately trying to reestablish Israel. And so he took steps to restore the order by appointing judges with these orders. Listen. Consider carefully what you do because you are not judging for man but for the Lord who is with you whenever you give a verdict. Now let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Judge carefully, not with the Lord our God, or excuse me, for with the Lord our God there is no injustice or partiality or bribery. A fear of God is, not was, a fear of God is essential for a good judge. Conversely, a judge who has no fear of God recognizes no universal ethic, no standard of right or wrong outside his own interests. Look at the problems we're having right now with the Supreme Court. What is the job of a justice on the Supreme Court? To determine if something being done agrees with the Constitution. Not to rewrite or reinterpret the Constitution. Their job is to interpret whether or not things that are going on are consistent with the Constitution of the United States. But we have judges all the time on the Supreme Court trying to rewrite 
law. And now the attempt to repack the court so that they can shift the balance of power when the Constitution itself said how many and for what reason. So we come to the widow. Life has dealt the woman in the parable a bitter blow. We're not told what the adversary is doing or, or what they're all about. And widows were among the most defenseless in Hebrew society. Remember what James says about pure and undefiled religion? Take care of the widows and the orphans. The Old Testament refers to widows being oppressed, Malachi 3. Taken advantage of in Exodus 22. And additionally, they were often legal victims, as in Isaiah 1. And probably that's the case for this poor woman. Likely she was one of those who Luke would later describe, just a couple chapters later, as a victim of men who devour widows' houses. She didn't want vengeance. She just wanted restorative justice. And realistically, there were very few options for her obtaining justice, especially from a rogue judge. She could do a bribe if she had any money at all, which she probably didn't as a widow. She could make a threat, which would be a waste. Or she could go to pleading. That, and that was actually her only recourse. And plead she did. Every day she begged him to help her. And the language leaves open the possibility of confrontation everywhere. Not just in the court. She might have pleaded with him in front of his colleagues or confronted him on the street. She possibly even persisted and pestered him in the market or could have even called out in front of his residence. We don't know. But we do know that her chances of redress were very slim with this godless, hardened, cynical man. And pleading was the only thing she could do. And sometimes there is no justice. So Jesus concludes by bringing up the fact that the judge consented due to the constant requesting of the woman. However, he doesn't want his disciples concluding that God is pestered by the prayers of his children. Rather, he asks if a wicked judge will grant the request of the woman for her persistence, how much more will a good God grant the requests of his ch children who are present in prayer? And if the disciples have any doubts about God's willingness to hear His children's prayer, Jesus states that He wants to give them justice. You see, the point of the parable, the point of the story that Jesus told involves both a comparison and a contrast. The comparison is that God will bring justice for those who continually pray to Him. Just as the judge brought about justice for the widow who continued to go to Him. But the contrast is that the judge didn't care about the widow, whereas God loves His chosen ones. But I've got to be honest with you. 
it's that closing question that haunts me. You see, it's the temporal references of verses 8 and 9 that make the passage difficult for me. Jesus said, God will not delay, but will give justice speedily. And so I just fall back on the scriptural statement that a thousand days is like a day and a day is like a thousand days. But then comes that haunting question. Even if God responds in a speedy manner, granting justice to Jesus' followers quickly, let me bring us home. Even when God answers our prayers, I know of people very close to me who have said, oh, if God gets us through this, and God did get them through it, and they went to church for a while, but got so far away that now on Facebook post things from atheistic organizations. Even when God answers our prayers, Jesus says, will anyone still have faith? How will we respond? You see, hopefully for each of us individually, the answer will be yes. That is if we live a life of prayer. Praying without ceasing. Thessalonians. James 5. Praying when we're suffering. Praying when we're sick. Praying when we failed. Timothy. Paul's letter to him. I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, thanksgiving, all different kinds of talking to God, praying, will be made for everyone. You see, we all, we all have needs. But you know what? We also have all we need to live the life God wants us to live. We studied the uh, armor of God this last summer at camp. Out of the armor of God, only two of the pieces of armor are offensive. And I don't mean by that rude to other people. I mean something to use when you're on the offense, not the defense. Only two. You know what they are? The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and prayer. And as dark as things might seem, as tough as temptations might be, God has provided and continues to provide the way of escape. So on this final Sunday of 2021, let me conclude with a challenge. It comes from a writer who I've admired for decades. A man by the name of Oz Guinness. 
He says the story of Christian Reformation, revival, and renaissance underscores that the darkest hour is often just before the dawn. So we should always be people of hope and prayer, not gloom and defeatism. God the Holy Spirit can turn the situation around in five minutes. Or the words of the Apostle Peter, in your hearts honor Christ the Lord. You notice he didn't even say the name Jesus. The Savior who is God. That's what that phrase means. The Messiah who is the Lord, capital L. In your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Hope. We heard about hope during our communion meditation from many different passages. Do you have hope? Or have you become hopeless and cynical? Let's pray. Father God, we come before you today hopefully as the tax collector admitting our sin recognizing our inability thank you for the scriptural reminder father that we can't clean up our act on our own we can't get it all together and that if we're waiting for a magical day when it'll all be taken care of, when we've done everything right to get in that po proper posture, then we're doomed. Help us to realize that by grace, through faithfulness, we have been forgiven and are saved in order to do good works. Empower us for the coming year. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.